Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your co-hosts are Ronnie Langer-Kroger and Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Envision. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg. Even when we explore the topic of inclusion, we often forget about the differently abled. When we discuss poverty, we often disregard that disability can be both a cause and a result from poverty. So how do we create an inclusive culture that actively welcomes the differently abled? What needs to change in our economic development paradigms, in our policy paradigms, to facilitate that inclusive culture? How can we make something that works for all people, regardless of ethnicity, ability, or where in the world they live? To explore these questions and more, I am joined today by Kiyoki King, CEO and co-founder of Participant Assistive Devices. He has over 10 years experience working on developing solutions that drive greater inclusion and participation of the differently abled. He designed and launched CLASP, a supply chain solution designed to improve the access and affordability of appropriate assistive products globally. So Kiyoki, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. So this is all about creating an inclusive culture that actively welcomes the differently abled. Could you just share a little bit about the scope of the problem globally? Sure. Thanks. So my, my experience is, is with wheelchairs and then there's, you know, this huge population of people that have other sorts of disabilities and, and it is really kind of mind blowing. Um, you know, many times we're, we're aware of problems, you know, for example, you know, so many refugees or so many people that have HIV AIDS or something, but, but vastly more uh, than those groups is the, the 70 million people who need a wheelchair and don't have one. And when we think about that broader category of people that have, you know, other disabilities, hearing disabilities or eye disabilities or so on, it's, it's now a billion people. The, um, the interesting thing about population uh, changes is that we've got a global population that's aging. And then there's been some good news where, you know, things like uh, polio are, are going away, but we have more issues like uh, chronic disease, like diabetes. So the scope of this problem is, is growing actually um, from roughly 10% of the population to, uh, to 20% of the population. We expect uh, 2 billion people by 2050 to have a disability and, and need to have assistive products. That's pretty big. <laughs> so yeah, how do, it is massive. So how does this how does this connect to to thinking about economic development and policy and you know whether that's domestic or international in scale or in scope? Yeah, that's it's a it's a great question. So uh, I mean, there's there's obvious things like you know if you if you can't get to the workplace. Um, then you're not in the workforce, right? Even if there's a job available or if there's some other, um, you know, human rights opportunity, if there's an opportunity for education or, you know, many of the things that we're driving toward with the SDGs, if you can't move your body to the location or you can't, you know, hear the words that are being spoken or, you know, other, other kinds of disabilities are preventing you from participation, you're, you're not benefiting from whatever, whatever progress is, you know, could be just a, a mile from your home. So, I think for, you know, for people that are interested in development work, you have to think about how can we layer on 
um, attention to you know these kind of issues. So making assistive products available, making sure the clinical care is available, making sure their products are you know durable and appropriate, usable in the local environment, so that this huge portion of the population can get the benefits of all the other you know all the other progress that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that to me begs the question a little bit too about uh, something I mentioned in the lead-in with around how disability is both a cause and a result of poverty. And so mm-hmm. how I'm just thinking there, there's more to how we need to think about this, right? If we're going to be combating yeah. poverty, there's, yeah. there's, there's something else about also, you know, it, it's not just the human rights aspect right. of of creating someone who, or sorry, creating the opportunity for someone to feel some dignity to be able to be a contributing member of society. But there's also a question around what happens when you are poorer. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that um, I've had a lot of just direct experiences, you know, going to low-income countries and, and working with people and seeing that some of the things we you know, we talk about are, are like very real and sometimes surprisingly real and, and rapid changes. So I think of um, one mother in Indonesia and uh, her child is not, you know, not able to walk. So she spends most of her day um, carrying the child around and then sits the child down on the furniture. Pretty soon the child's uncomfortable, um, you know, because they, the child can't sit up, uh, you know, normally in the chair. So they're slumping over to the sides and they're very, so, so this mother is all day long attending to the child. And then when um, the child gets a wheelchair, well, they're able to push themselves around the house a little bit. And that was really what I was excited to talk to the mother about. You know, tell me about how much more comfortable your child is and what are they learning. But what had actually happened in their home that, that transformed the living environment, you know, more, probably more than the wheelchair, was the mother now has all this extra time. So she had started a little business and she's you know, just doing some uh, some sewing there in her home and, and selling these goods, and now there's significantly more income. So one of the things that happens with people with disabilities is, uh, you know, if there's no social uh, support net in the country, um, the family members are the ones who end up, you know, providing all of this care that is vastly more if the assisted products are not available and those people are not in the workforce. Um, and then the other storyline that you see pretty often, and this is, more important now because we see, you know, more automobiles and, you know, maybe not traffic laws keeping up with um, the automobiles. And so you have so many accidents and people with spinal cord injuries. So you've got folks that they may have even had a university education um, or maybe they were just a laborer, but they're, uh, they're in the workforce and they're, they've got a number of people that are depending on that income. And then suddenly they're injured and now they've got huge medical expenses. Um, and they're not working anymore. So if you have a good, um, you know, if you've got the right equipment and the right clinical system and the right, the right processes there to help these folks get rehabilitated, they can get back to work. So those are, those are two really important things that are, you know, significant, um, you know, significant factors when you think about the economic impacts of disability. Mm-hmm. And, but I... From what I'm hearing you say, though, that that feels like it's not just obviously there's there's often perhaps this stands out more for many of us in lower income countries. But I feel like there's also something to be said for higher income countries for here in the U.S., for example, how this is something that there are oftentimes 
family caretakers, you know, whether the it's mm-hmm. an elderly person with, you know, mm-hmm. a mother or a grandmother or, a, you know, I'll say a, a parent or a grandparent who or an, a, an aunt or an uncle who has Alzheimer's or who mm-hmm. has Parkinson's or who had an accident, like you're saying, and mm-hmm. it ends up falling on the shoulders of somebody you know, who might otherwise be out working and supporting their family with additional income, taking care of that person. So yeah, how, you know, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot to be said for a lot to what, what you said applies to, to higher income countries as well. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. So uh, I, I think that I, I, I should, you know, we should look this up, but I, I believe the current statistic is over 70%. Um, of people that are wheelchair users in the U.S. are, are not employed. If it's, if it's not that, it's very close to that. So there needs to be a lot of improvements in, in the way that we approach disability to, to you know, help people to have access to buildings, um, to decrease stigma, to, so that people don't see a person in a wheelchair and assume you know, they're not you know, able to come to work and do a job, especially when you know, so much of work now is at a computer screen. So obviously mm-hmm. these people can you know, do, you know, do, a, do a fine bit of work there. Um, so I think for, for participant, one of the things that we do is we, we really want to stay away from um, kind of a, a medical image of our products. Um, so people with disabilities are, are not sick um, necessarily, right? Like, like, you know, you might get a cold one day or, you know, I might or they might, and so then you're sick that day. But, but we don't need to think about, um, you know, these devices as, as something that um, are like very silver and shiny and square and it looks like a hospital wheelchair, you know, wheelchairs mm-hmm. can be sporty, and ultimately, what you want to do is like focus on the person. You don't want the you don't want the emphasis to be on the technology, but we want to look over there and see this uh, you know see this wonderful person and think about how can we engage with them. I think um, you know one of the one of the images that comes to mind is like you know so clear in our popular culture is is uh, you know, Stephen Hawking. So mm-hmm. we. We think about Stephen Hawking and all of the brilliance. I mean, we we understand black holes, you know, so much better, and many, many, many other things. If if he doesn't have his power wheelchair, he's not able to take his body uh, to give the lecture, and he's also not able to go and you know be face to face and have great dialogue with other scholars. Um, if he doesn't have his uh, his his speech um, translator and mm-hmm. you know, all the different technology that's going on there, then he's not able to communicate. We miss on his brilliance, and he also misses out on a whole lot of life. So making these products available and having an inclusive um, approach in terms of how we do our designing our buildings and then also how society thinks about disabilities is tremendously important. No, absolutely. And and Stephen Hawking, I mean, he, he lived to be 76, is that right? So, you know, twice what he was expected to live. When, because he was, you know, he had such an early onset ALS, so it just is amazing that you know that we were able, and and many of his his most well known discoveries actually occurred long after he was wheelchair bound. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, that's yeah, it, it that's a, a a really good example. So yeah. so what? Um, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what? How much farther do we need to go? You know, because you there's you're you're seeing a gap, obviously, and you talked a little bit about some of the design elements around wheelchairs and and so on. But I, I I'm also thinking that there, 
are policy questions and that also need to be addressed in terms of facilitating infrastructure in addition to, you know, so there's the, sort of the macro level and then there's the micro level at the family level. Right. But, you know, so what's the gap that you see with, um, you know, what's been done so far? And, you know, perhaps if it makes sense to give a, a, a spectrum of, of a, an example, like what's it like in Indonesia compared to here in the U.S. or, you know, perhaps mm. Africa or, mm-hmm. or Europe or, you know, however you want to break it up. Sure. So we want, um, you want products to be uh, appropriate. And so, you know, a, a product that's appropriate in the U.S. is not going to be appropriate in Indonesia. Um, for example, you know, if, you're, if you live in a place where mostly you're rolling around on smooth floors and there's elevators and there's curb cuts, um, the forces that are going to impact on the device are, are much different than if you're living in a place where the road's very gravelly or rocky. Um, maybe there's no curb cuts, so you're just going to roll off of the curb and the chair's going to have this big impact. Um, if the, if the train is nice and flat, um, there's less chance that a chair is going to tip over. But if you, you know, if the chair is uneven, well, you need to have a chair with a bigger footprint so that it's not tipping over. So I think the progress on the technology development, we, we've definitely made some progress. Yesterday I was with, um, Ralph Hoskis, who's a, um, the huge, huge award winner. He's started probably... Uh, 25 or 30 wheelchair factories around the world in, in small Whoa. local communities. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also a MacArthur um, uh, fellow. Shoot. MacArthur fellow. Is it MacArthur? Yeah, he's also MacArthur fellow. fellow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I should I should probably try that again. So um, yesterday I was with Ralph Hotchkiss, and uh, he started probably 25 or 30 uh, small wheelchair factories around the world. He's a MacArthur fellow. He's, uh, you know, just accomplished so much. But one of, one of his big achievements is to develop this Rough Rider wheelchair, which is, you know, a much longer wheelbase and is able to function well um, in a lot of the environments where, you know, where the wheelchair users that I'm familiar with are, are living, where the, maybe the road's not paved and they're, um, you know, really going to have to go off of some, uh, you know, pretty, pretty difficult terrain in order to get where they need to go and accomplish what they want to do. So I think that, the, you know, the technology is on the way. It's definitely not there. Um, we still have huge problems with, you know, products breaking down, making sure that they're repairable, um, making sure that there's a, a variety of products that fit all the different, you know, body sizes and uh, postural support needs. So, yeah, that's, um, I, think, I think we're making progress, but we're definitely not there yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. If you don't mind, could I tell you a bit about my first experience with wheelchairs? Yes, please. I was about to ask you that, so go for it. Thanks. So, so my... Um, Actually, my grandmother and, and her husband uh, had disabilities as a result of uh, having accidents when they were children and then not getting very good care. So um, my grandmother's one leg was fused and shorter than the other, so she always walked with a cane, and if we were going very far, she'd use wheelchair. And then uh, grandfather had broken his leg and, um, and you know, also had uh, you know, more, of a, more of a limp, like a, a less pronounced disability. But the, um, the thing that was that was remarkable to me as a child was just this, this wheelchair that my grandmother was using because it was difficult for her to push, you know, even inside. When it came time for us to go somewhere, it didn't fit into the car very easily. It was enormous. Um, you know, of course, it looks very medical. It looks like, you know, something that you would find in a hospital. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't very beautiful. 
And uh, gosh, it was heavy. So even at an early age, you know, being sort of a designer and thinking, you know, what, what are the problems here and how can this be improved, um, that, that, that really struck me as this is, this is a device that needs improvement and then realize, wow, the technology hasn't, you know, improved very much in quite a long time. So that was, that was, I think, some of my, you know, first moments of, and, and for a lot of people in the world, it is our, it is our grandparents because as we age, we need more assistive uh, products to help us, you know, to continue to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So could you very briefly say uh, what your journey to participant has been? We have a minute mm-hmm. left before the break. Sure, thanks. Um, I finished my MBA now almost nine years ago and then worked uh, at Whirlwind with Ralph uh, for four years and then with uh, UCP Wheels, which is down in Los Angeles, two really great California companies that are working on these issues. And, uh, and then just in the last six months, we've, we've launched participants, uh, some, some kind of you know, remarkable, disappointing stories there at the end of my time with, with UCP Wheels and then kind of a new vision to overcome some of those challenges. Maybe we could talk about a little bit that, uh, more after the break. That would be awesome. We'll be right back after a short break with Keoke King, CEO and co-founder of Participant Assistive Devices. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back. We're here with K.O.K. King, 
CEO and co-founder of Participant Assistive Devices. And we were discussing discussing the challenges differently abled people have being included in communities and community activities around the world. And Kiyoke was beginning to share his journey to co-founding Participative Participant assistive devices and so that's where I'd really like to pick up where we left off okay so you know as you were you were sharing a little bit about your experience with your grandparents and and coming to founding participant in the last six months so you know I'd love to hear a little bit more detail and 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 some of the what you're experiencing with with participant what's your intent with it Thanks. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to, to get back to that kind of disappointing experience that I had there. So one of the things we want to do is to have manufacture the products near to the users. So you have a shorter supply chain, better supply of spare parts. Um, and so we had set up manufacturing in Indonesia. And things were, things were going great. They were, you know, producing great quality, delivering on time for the most part. And, uh, and I, was, I was really proud of that. Then last maybe August, they, they contacted me and said, you know, Suzuki is so excited to make a new car in the room where we make your wheelchair, so please come and get your things. <laughs> so this was a, wow. You know, so it's a disappointment. Um, and we've, we've seen this a number of times where as, as GDP increases and then, you know, there's more motorcycles or more cars or something like that, um, the manufacturing wants to switch away from, um, you know, making, making wheelchairs. There's not a lot of margin in wheelchairs. So... Um, and then, and then we lose our manufacturing. So, well, that, that manufacturing is, uh, is going to move to China. Um, that's my, my former company, UCP Wheels, is doing that project. But this was, this was a major, you know, kind of a bummer that resulted in a new vision for me. Um, we're just beginning to think about how can we use new technology to um, have a, a local factory that can make a variety of products have you know costs under control, great quality, and and needs to be able to make small batches. You want to make you know fifty of one thing, hundred of another, and five hundred of another, and so on. This is really challenging for conventional manufacturing technology. And then I saw somebody has printed um, a bicycle. So basically, what you can you know bicycles is a series series of triangles, and they've kind of printed the corners, the points on the triangle, and then inserted aluminum tubes. And that was that was a kind of a eureka moment. Oh wow, we could do that with wheelchairs, and that's that was kind of the beginning of the the vision for participant gathering uh, my other co-founders together and thinking about how can we start this company. So so taking okay so taking that bo- that bicycle analogy, being a cyclist myself, the you're basically three D printing the lugs of the bicycle exactly. frame or the wheelchair frame, and you're inserting inserting. Standard, ma- standardly manufactured tubing, right, right, aluminum tubing. Okay, yeah. Or are, so, are, you, um, are you using to are you using aluminum or are you thinking of using other materials? There's, you know, there's a trade off between aluminum and steel. You, you you save quite a bit of weight with aluminum. The cost goes up about you know thirty or forty percent. Um, usually, steel you can buy in the local economy. Um, where mm-hmm. aluminum, you're probably going to need to ship it in, but you know because we're already shipping in the the filament um, for the 3D printers, well then you know you've already got a supply chain going on there. So that's that's something that we're that we're still working out. Our first products that we'll release um, in the U.S. early next year will be aluminum, mm-hmm. because it's relatively available here. 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll actually manufacture it in China. The, um, it, it's really important to have manufacturing in China because the, the big NGOs um, are always always the leaders in introducing a new technology to a low-income country, right? So if they've never seen these great wheelchairs before, they're not just going to start buying them. Somebody needs to introduce them, and I'm very grateful to my um, NGO partners like Community and Inclusion, International Red Cross, and others that are, are doing that work. Um, but they want their shipments to originate in China. So we need to have uh, large-scale manufacturing there. And then as we see the demand uh, grow, then we can start thinking about let's, let's uh, invest and make a factory in the local area. Mm-hmm. Is that just because of the convenience of, of scaling that manufacturing in China? Or is it just because it's, it's the manufacturing hub of the world at this moment? Or what, what is the... What's, what's their well, driving reason? Yeah, yeah, good, great question. Um, so we need to have large-scale manufacturing somewhere. And mm-hmm. if you put your large-scale manufacturing, you know, uh, in some clever location, but nobody's, you know, nobody else is making other things there, um, the boats don't pick up there. So you, now you've got to take the boat from, you know, Shanghai over to your new clever location and then go wherever it is you're going. So first of all, customers won't agree to that. Um, Mm -hmm. And secondly, you've got all this additional transportation costs. So it is kind of important right now to keep it in China. We don't go directly to to local production because there has to be demand. Um, Mm -hmm. You're going to make an investment of several hundred thousand dollars to open this this little production facility. And if there's not consistent demand from the local government and from NGOs and users and so on, um, then you're you're liable to have uh, you know a lot of months in the red. So you don't mm-hmm. you don't want to do that. You want to get the demand established um, and then follow with the local production. Okay, so that makes me wonder about what what ecosystem is necessary to make this work. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think demand is the big one. So the way that we'll develop our products is that we can have, uh, you know, fairly low educated people doing the assembly and, you know, a lot of 3d printer, the technology is improving and improving, but it's still, it's still quite fussy. Um, mm-hmm. but we expect that within the next year, year and a half, a lot of the you know fussiness will get resolved. Um, 3d printing is, is just now becoming something that is not just for prototyping, but can be used for industrial, you know, large scale production and so on. Um, if you're curious to learn about, you, you could look at the, the Mark Forged, M-A-R-K-F-O-R-G-E-D um, website and just kind of, you know, look on YouTube. There's some terrific um, videos there of, uh, you know, actually using 3D printing in an industrial environment. So um, all, all that to say that we, we want the, these little production units to, you know, not require a bunch of, um, you know, PhDs, but that we could, re- you know, reasonably go to a low-income country and find people that have the education level and the, um, and, the, and the availability to, you know, to start the production up. And then, you know, essentially we're, we're printing from the cloud. So the quality of the um, end product is going to be related to the materials and the designs and so on. So we're shipping in some materials and we're printing from the cloud and some folks are doing the local assembly. So I think that... Um, you know, we need to test this in some, some, you know, kind of controlled environments. You know, maybe in the U.S. or or other places where where we can have a lot of resources to solve problems. Um, but once we've got the the production dialed, we should be able to have a factory factory sort of in a box and mm-hmm. you know, drive it in, drop it off, and set up a factory and train a workforce and, and get moving. 
Okay, so what I'm hearing is that it's more for, because demand is the primary driver here, this would go into higher population density areas than, Mm -hmm. say, a a more rural situation, for example. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's lots of reasons to put manufacturing in a in a place where there's, you know, good roads and good infrastructure and good electricity and so on, as opposed to, you know, far, far out where maybe labor is cheaper, but you have lots of difficulties. Right. And of course, the, the level, uh, the speed of the internet connection, the, the, the reliability of the internet connection, if you're printing from the cloud on a regular basis is also yeah, a I concern. Think, I think we, we, we probably want to have, you know, like a satellite, uh, connection for for bandwidth and solar panels and things like that, um, mm-hmm. just so that we can manage some of the um, you know some of those difficulties and not not always be you know shutting down work because um, there's a brownout today or something which you know happens pretty frequently. Indeed, indeed. So, what is the the general business model for participants? You're talking about this off grid. I'm hearing this off grid factory in a box type. Mm-hmm. Of- Scenario. So, could you describe that a little bit more? Sure. So, the, the the basic business model. I've really tried to learn a lot from you know from other people that have done great work. So, I'm I'm fond of uh, David Green from Conversion Sound and Aura Lab. Um, he's he and others have really pioneered this idea of a cross subsidy um, approach, where you've got one market where you can charge a little bit higher price, and maybe there's a little bit um, better of a product or service offered. And then the profits from that can subsidize, um, you know, the, the lower income uh, market. And then you also, in the low income market, you get a huge um, volume, right? So you're, you're, there's a lot of people to serve there. Your price is lower, so you get some economies of scale um, at the same time uh, where you're getting the cross subsidy. So um, our, our approach will be to make products that are kind of good enough for the U.S., um, so, like, our first product is a pediatric wheelchair. We plan to sell it, uh, you know, direct off of Amazon or something like that. And um, that should open up uh, for a lot of families here in the U.S. who, who can't afford right now the very expensive um, pediatric wheelchairs. Uh, that, you know, so they're, they're kind of priced for, for Medicaid. And our product will be quite a lot more affordable, so then the families can have that. Uh, to benefit, go outside and enjoy taking their, you know, their children around, maybe even, you know, go hiking and so on. Um, and then we make some margin from that and can use that for what we're doing in, in low-income countries. So we're, you know, you've got the same product. It's good enough. It's FDA approved. It's, um, you know, plenty durable. It meets American kind of aesthetic standards. And then you've got what is, you know, a really terrific product um, for a lower-middle-income country. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So what is different about participant? Because when we were speaking mm. before the interview, you, you know, there were there's some key attributes that you're trying to bring forward with with participant <laughs> and how you've set it up. So Thanks. I'd love for you to Thanks share that. that. Thanks. OK, so so one thing that's very important is we're a B Corp. So um, in California, you can register your business as a as a benefit corporation, and that means that in your in your incorporation documents, um, you've got a mission statement similar to what a nonprofit would have. Um, and so this is this is really different than you know a for profit company saying, yeah, we're gonna um, you know we're gonna take the bad chemicals out of our soap, and you can just believe our marketing people because they always tell the truth. Um, 
You know, actually, you have companies <laughs> like you know, like Method or something where you know they're a B Corp, and when they say um, you know our our products are better for the environment, it stands on on testing and not just their internal testing, but um, a B Corp is going to have uh, a third party that's going to you know check and see that these marketing claims are really true. Um, so, so we'll be a B Corp. We'll be the first B Corp uh, medical device company, and we're really interested um, in serving users. And you know, our, our name is participant assistive products. With what we want to see, the big social impact is increase in participation. Um, so we want to be able to to measure, you know, first baseline when people first receive our product what's been their, their recent history of participation, and then see after they receive the product as far as, you know, going to school or work or worship or whatever, you know, social activities, hanging, how, many, how many nights did they go and hang out with friends. We want to see those metrics really improve substantially and then also be able to measure that um, versus our competitors so that we can say, yeah, participant products, you know, compared to the, you know, to the other guys are really better in terms of how much participation the users are actually doing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So why do you think it's so unusual that that a, a medical device manufacturer is a B Corp? It just seems like a natural a natural fit. Hey, I ho- I hope that we're the first one and the, and the first of very, very many. So we, mm-hmm. um, we want to be disruptive in this space, and we think there's a huge market opportunity in the U.S. Um, the, the market opportunity in low- and middle-income countries is, is like, gen- genuinely massive and rapidly improving, not, you know, not just the, the number of people that need to be served, but the number of governments that are willing to pay. Um, so this, this is a good market opportunity, and we'd like to see more and more companies jump in here um, there's a lot of products that need to be developed, and we think that, you know, in orientation and the design, but also in the, you know, company structure on how can we really benefit users as opposed to only shareholders or owners, um, that that is going to be uh, terrific in terms of the, both the commercial and the social impact. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, may there be many and in short order. So, All right. indeed, what what... So you mentioned earlier that you're going to be starting with this wheelchair. So why, obviously you have more experience with, with wheelchairs and I believe your co-founders as well, but I'm curious what right. other, what, how are you rounding out that product line and, and what are your plans? Sure. Thanks. So, you know, one of, one of the things that's probably, you know, remarkable about participant is, is our founder team. So between our founders, we've got, a, I think, 105 years of experience in the space, and we've, we've divide, designed and put into manufacture over 100 wheelchairs. So, you know, this is not folks that are just going to try hard. We, we have really done this before, and we're, um, we're very determined to succeed. So our, the reason that we started with this pediatric uh, supportive wheelchair, and, and just for, you know, to get a mental image, you can, you can imagine a stroller. You know, but not a stroller for a kid that's up to four years old, but, a, you know, a kid that's up to, you know, 11, 12, 14, you know, even, um, even a young adult. Um, so if, if, these, uh, if, if the user has trouble walking, well, then they need to be able to, you know, have wheels and get around. So right now, this, these products are enormously expensive in low-income countries and many uh, middle-income countries, uh, for example, in, in Thailand or Argentina. Um, they're, they're either extraordinarily expensive or don't exist at all. It's totally not available. 
so um, so this is a real gap in the market, and we're you know we we know how to done how to do this, and so we'll go ahead and develop this product first, and we want to have a family of probably uh, eight or ten um, different wheelchairs, and then we want to get into you know first devices that are related to mobility products, you know, so maybe ramps to go along with wheelchairs, um, and then later on we'll look at what are the other needs, other kinds of uh, assistive products if it's you know, hearing aids or something. We haven't figured that out yet. Wonderful. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. We're speaking with KOK King, co-founder and CEO of Participant Assistive Devices, and we'll be right back after a short break. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back. We're here with KOK King, CEO and co-founder of Participant Assistive Devices. And we've been discussing Participant Assistive Devices plans for the future and and how and their business model. KOK, I'd like to turn the conversation now towards what communities can do to, mm. to be more inclusive. What do they need to think about to be more inclusive? You mentioned a few things, but you know, throughout the, our conversation thus far, but, that, you know, if you could be a little more specific about what communities can do to start this process for themselves. Sure, sure. I think that, um, you know, probably would go after this question in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, there's, there's the global advocacy progress. Is actually, I'll, I'll mention in a moment, there's been a huge leap forward just in the last couple of days 
Um, but then, you know, on, on a more kind of a personal and like local social level. Um, so I think as, especially as you're setting up a new office or you're designing a new house or you're, um, you know, maybe even a developer in a neighborhood, you, you want to think about universal design. And it's not just about, oh, we're going to make some, you know, really expensive, you know, modifications here so that this very few people can participate. That's, that's actually not not the way it has actually worked out in, in real history. So, for example, in the, in the U.S., we've put in a lot of curb cuts, and then there's been a number of studies that have shown that it's not just the, the wheelchair users, but it's all of these moms with strollers and, you know, other people that are, you know, pushing things on wheels and delivery people that, that use those curb cuts. Um, you know, you might, you might walk up to a door, and if it's an old building, it's got a, you know, a round knob. So if you don't have uh, grip strength, um, or if you're, or if you don't have, you know, any use of your fingers at all, it's really difficult to open a knob. So now you have a lever-shaped door handles, which are just easier for everybody, you know, to get in and out of the room. If you've got your arms full of things, you can push that down with your elbow, and kind of, you know, everybody will laugh at you maybe because it looks, you know, <laughs> worried you're going to fall over with your packages, but you did get out the door. So universal design is really um, is really an important consideration. Um, just as people are doing any kind of changes to, you know, to a, to a building or infrastructure or neighborhood or so on, think about how can you improve that. There's lots of consultants out there that are very eager to, uh, to contribute. There's a ton of information available for free online. Um, I believe the, you know, there's the ADA website. The CDC has some great um, information. So, yeah, search online when you get into those projects and consider that. I think that's a good, I think that's a good start. Um, yeah, and then just as you're, as you're doing something so simple as like planning an event and you, you, you know, are hoping there's, there's going to be a, you know, inclusive approach and lots of people are going to show up. Well, you know, if you're going to have cocktail people, uh, cocktail tables and people, you know, standing around drinking, you don't want the cocktail table to be at the, you know, over the head height of the person who's sitting in the wheelchair. So there's, there's lots of things like that that you can you know, that you can do just to make an environment that's, you know, very, uh, very inviting and usable for all the people that are going to be involved. Super. So just jumping back to your comments around the curb cuts and, and door handles that, as I understand it, at least here in the U.S., that's typically a federal law, right? That was part of the ADA that was mm-hmm. signed in, what, 1989, so, are there local uh, zoning regulations or are there local policies, whether that's at the community level or at the state level, that people can start thinking about that would mm-hmm. be more supportive? Or are there policies that would facilitate, for example, some of the, the cross-subsidy strategy that you were mentioning earlier in support of of participant and and other activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of local progress that can be made, um, and, and I think that the way to go after it is for the people that are you know, making making the rules to just engage with the community to get out and talk to people and ask them what you know what can make this and this environment more hospitable to you, and then let's look and see how we can do that. And not everything needs to be done on a policy level. Just you know, in, individuals being considerate is a is a great start. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I would I would note um, one one big leap forward that we've had even in just this last week 
is um, there's a big uh, World Health Assembly, right? So the, the United Nations has the WHO, and then occasionally um, they get together to you know, decide what resolutions are they going to adopt and what's their, um, what's their agenda going forward. So there was an assistive uh, technology resolution, and, um, and it, was, it was adopted. So this is, this is a massive step forward because what they want to do is, uh, first of all, encourage governments to improve access to assistive technology. And then they'll make a report. Um, in, in 2021, they'll make a report and say, this is, you know, this is the state of the world. So doing all of that research um, kind of, sh- you know, puts the, uh, puts the light into a lot of maybe dark corners where, you know, things are not very well understood or not, you know, not well paid attention to. And so, you know, then we can look and see, all right, here's the, here's the situation and how do we need to improve. Um, right now, 90% of people who need assistive technology don't have it. And that kind of follows the general idea that um, 80% of medical devices that are, you know, already developed and on, um, you know, on offer um, are developed for like 20% of the world population. So that is a that is a big thing that needs to happen. We need to see more, um, you know, more commercial companies and more product developers go after these products so that the, so there's more devices developed. And then as the as the world follows the World Health Assembly. Um, uh, resolution and the and the money begins to flow and the governments have procurement budgets, then those devices are available to the people that need them. But I, mm-hmm. I recognize that's like much much bigger scope than maybe um, maybe your question of what can people do in a local area. Well, indeed, but it it also may be that they start fomenting that request, saying this is what just passed. Our community needs this support. When are you going to respond to these oft-forgotten members of our community? You know, whether that community yeah. happens to be uh, a small town someplace or whether it's, it's oh, talking about a certain percentage of the national population. Right, right. I, th- I think where, where these kind of you know, very high level. I mean, they're almost so high level that it's difficult to imagine what happens in these, you know, World Health Assembly and what is that all about. Um, but I think the way that I hear local advocates using that information is they'll say, you know, like, here's, here's a group of experts. They've really done, you know, excellent job looking at all the different issues and figuring out what the priorities are. And their conclusion is, you know, this. And so, you know, here in my local area, in my you know, my neighborhood or my city or so on, how can we move with what, you know, these folks have, have determined to be important? Or how can we at least inspect and see how does it apply to us? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is actually something that is, you know, probably less in the U.S. and much more in, in other countries. Um, the governments do look to the WHO for leadership. And, and then the local advocate can, can pull from that and say, look at what's happened way up at the top of the pyramid. Let's talk about how we're going to implement that here in our local area. Yeah. So it sounds like there are some, some allies that already exist in communities or regions. And so how does, you know, I guess if I'm part of the government, a local, a local government, how do I, you know, what's the best way, or if I'm interested in supporting this, how do I start identifying those allies? How do I start finding those like-minded people that can help create, aggregate this 
this voice to clamor for more support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to be too much more helpful here than just to say use Google. Um, okay. There's there's going to be um, you know different advocacy groups in every in every particular area um, around the U.S. There's the Centers for Independent Living that are that are doing outstanding work. My um, my former employer, United Cerebral Palsy, has got some some great things going on. But you know, you don't you, you want to talk to people who have a, a real local knowledge of what the local community needs, and mm-hmm. then um, you know, look at okay, well, let's you know, let's start with the things that are going to make the most different for for these people. Right. Okay. And. Earlier, you highlighted three resources uh, from International Disability Alliance and mm-hmm. the CDC, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Centers for Disease Control, and then Humanity and Inclusion U.S. And so right. was, could you briefly explain why you're pointing people to each of these, these resources, which, by sure. the way, the links will also be on the Facebook page if you want to, uh, if you want to look at them. So excellent, excellent. So, so humanity and inclusion is a is a large global NGO um, coming out of uh, Lyon, France, and they are doing a lot of projects. Um, I think in very early days they were doing a lot of things for landmine victims and uh, prosthetic legs and so on, especially following uh, conflicts. So, but you know, more broadly now they they do a lot of work. Um, in advocacy in terms of like what, what's happened at the WHO level and how can we bring that to, to be like real tangible change here in some local area. Um, and not just on, you know, the product side of things where I am, but also on the clinical side of things, they do a great job. Um, and ICRC does too, training uh, local clinicians, you know, here's how to, um, you know, do, um, <laughs> I don't even have, I'm, I, prosthetics is not my area, but it, you know, here's here's how to do a great job of service for people that need prosthetics. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think those you know those organizations are doing great work. There's you know certainly many many others. Those are some of the ones that are the um, the largest. There's a, you know a lot of great ones here in the U.S. too. So if you if you do visit those organizations' websites, there'll be lots you know lots to read there about. What are the methods that they're using in the countries that's really making a difference? Um, what's their agenda? How are they moving forward? And then how can people here get involved? Super. Thank you. And you mentioned, too, that there was a – that just getting out and asking people is perhaps the first best uh, – the, the best first step that – you know, a community can take to say, what do you need? Are there Uh other best practices that they should be following to include the differently abled? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I would probably just go, you know, just go back to that. So like when you, when you engage with people and you say, you know, we're, we're very, we really value your voice. We really value your participation in this community. Um, What, what can we do to help this, you know, be more hospitable so that the environment's more workable, um, so that things are more more comfortable for you. You know, what what comes to your mind, and then and then just give them you know time to talk. Uh, and they they might point to CIL Center for Independent Living or some other local resources um, where you can have some experts come over and kind of you know say here's here's some changes that we'd want to make to this environment or some policy changes changes for this organization to make it work better for everybody. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's the best way to go. Just 
begin, you know, begin to talk to people and make a plan and, and go forward and do it. Okay. That sounds good. So what's next for the participant? You mentioned the, you know, starting with this chair and then moving from there. Uh-huh. So just like how quickly are things going to be available? And Thanks. So we've got uh, four products that we're working on now. Uh, we, we plan to release them uh, starting maybe next February. Um, we'll do um, a Kickstarter. So these are, these are all physical products, so they're going to be terrific for a Kickstarter community. Um, and that will help us to, you know, really check and see, did we, <laughs> did we do our product development in a way that, that meets with the actual, you know, actual demand? So we're looking forward to that. Um, and then, you know, in the very, in the very near term, we're, you know, we're, we're a new startup company. We don't have our seed capital together yet. So we're looking for investors. We're looking for partners. Um, you know, we're exploring different, um, different 3D printing technology. I mentioned Mark Forge. So those are all, those are all things that an early stage startup needs to do, you know, figure out, um, figure out the product, figure out the partnerships, get the, um, get the capital together. And that's, that's really, you know, where we are. And those are the things that we're working on. Mm -hmm. And probably a week we'll begin to do um, feedback sessions with users, uh, just kind of a screen share webinar and show uh, demos of the product and let people give feedback and say, how would this, you know, work for your child, or if it's a therapist, how would this work for um, the, the clients that you know? So we're looking forward to that. That's, uh, that's very, very important for us. Super, super. So how can listeners follow yours and participant story? Oh, thanks. Well, so our website is uh, participant.life. And uh, there you can sign up for our newsletter, and then uh, we'll be in touch with you as, you know, as different opportunities come about. If it's a you know, if it's a Kickstarter or a product review session, um, we'll communicate to that list and, and let people know so they can take the next step and get involved. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Kioke. It's been delightful having you on the show. Well, thank you very much, sir. I've really enjoyed this. You're providing a great service for social entrepreneurs. I really uh, am very grateful for being invited. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So, I also want to share with our listeners that we have just down have over 19,000 downloads in 11 months and we are seeking sponsors for the show. If you're interested in reaching an audience in more than 49 countries and over 38 states in the U.S. and abroad, please send us an email at envision at regenerate.coach. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and this is Envision. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. For more information about today's guests and upcoming shows, please see our show page on voiceamerica.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.